Nahum chapter 3 and then drop down to verse 14. So look with me at Nahum chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of God. Uh, I encourage you to heed it whenever God speaks. He always speaks because he loves his people. And whenever he speaks, he always speaks the truth. So hear the word of God. Nahum chapter 3. Woe to the bloody city, full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. The crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. But I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And then verse 14. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will, there will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. And there is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. And all who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we always need your spirit, but uh, we do especially need your spirit. It feels like today, as we consider again this little book of three chapters, this portion of your word. So please come and please help us. Please give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe these things. And Lord, please help us again, I pray, to see that your goodness really is a very, very good thing. Help us to see that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We are uh, making our way through the Minor Prophets. We're taking a second look at the prophet Nahum. And I uh, confess to you uh, that uh, the Minor Prophets can be a tough read. Um, they're not minor because they're any less significant. Somehow they got the name minor just because they're short. But they're not any less significant. And this portion of God's word is no less God's word. 
than any other portion of God's Word. But I admit that it's tough. It's a tough read, and it's tough because there is this theme, and it's a golly, it's a hard thing to wrestle with. There is this theme of God's anger and wrath, which we looked at last week, and even His hatred of unrighteousness and sin. His hatred of it. And as I think we'll see, that's not too strong a word, the word hatred. Uh, One of our presidents, I think it was Calvin Coolidge, returned from worship one Sunday, and he was asked by his wife what the minister's sermon was about, and the president, who was apparently a man of very few words, said very simply, sin. And that's all he said. And his wife responded and said, well, what did he say about it? And he said, I believe he's against it. (laughs) And I think as you read the Minor Prophets, you get the sense that God is opposed to sin. You get the sense that God is opposed to unrighteousness. And verse 5 tells us not only is it the case that he is against sin and he is against unrighteousness, But verse 5 tells us that he is against those who commit acts of unrighteousness. I am against you, chapter 3, verse 5. I am against you, says the Lord God Almighty. Now the point that we've been trying to make here, we tried to make it in Amos and, and returned to it again last week. The point we're trying to make here is simply this. There is somebody at home in the universe. Uh, The universe is not empty. There is someone at home in the universe. And the someone who is at home in the universe knows what is right and knows what is wrong. He is perfectly clear about that. And he cares about what is right and what is wrong. He is at home in the universe that he has made. He upholds it by the word of his power. He inhabits it. He knows what is right and he knows what is wrong. And he cares about what is right and what is wrong. And here's the last thing. He is also powerful. Having created the whole universe, having upheld and continuing to uphold the whole universe, he is able to do something about what is wrong. He's able to do something about it. And what I've been trying to suggest to us is that that is really good news. It really is good news that there is somebody at home in the universe who is able to do something about injustice and unrighteousness. And here's a way that I think is good to think about this and right to think about this. I think it's very much in keeping with the whole storyline of the Bible from from creation to fall and through redemption and to consummation. The way to think about this is that God cares very much about putting things right. He cares very much about putting things right. Some of you maybe nearly 20 years ago saw the movie Grand Canyon. Kevin Kline, Danny Glover end up being friends in this film. Kevin Klein is an immigration attorney, and he finds himself in a traffic jam 
frustrated as we all are by traffic jams, he gets out of the traffic jam and starts to make his way through the back streets of a major urban center in the United States, trying to get to wherever it is that he needs to go more quickly. Well, he finds himself moving more and more and more deeply into more and more and more unseemly and unsafe parts of this urban center. And as you would guess, his car breaks down. And when his car breaks down, he's surrounded by a bunch of toughs. It's their turf. And they see a free lunch, metaphorically speaking. Well, before he actually has his encounter with these toughs deep in the heart of this urban blight, he's able to make a phone call and gets a tow truck to come to his rescue, and Danny Glover is driving the tow truck. And when Danny Glover gets there, he sees exactly what's going on, and he sees that this guy is exposed, exposed to injustice, exposed to unrighteousness, exposed to danger, and Danny Glover takes the leader of the young toughs off to the side and says this. He says, man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can and that dude over there is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything is supposed to be different from what it is here. That's philosophy 101, folks. That's your experience and my experience. Everything is supposed to be different from what it is here. This ain't the way it's supposed to be. And the whole point, and I'm belaboring this because I want for us to have Nahum in a context, the whole point is there is someone at home in the universe who cares and someone who is determined to put things right because things are not the way they're supposed to be. Now, there are three things, as always, or usually, three things that come out of this passage in Nahum. And they all have to do with this business that God is about, the business of putting things right. Number one, judgment is a reasonable thing. Judgment is a reasonable thing. Number two, judgment, when it comes, is irresistible. Judgment, when it comes, is irresistible. And third, judgment, when it comes, actually, strangely, brings rejoicing. Okay? Judgment is reasonable. Judgment is irresistible. And judgment actually brings rejoicing. So first the reasonableness of judgment, which is to say that there are reasons that explain why God will bring judgment to Nineveh. There are reasons that, it, that make this judgment reasonable. Now, I don't want you to lose sight, as we said last week, as we think about this, I don't want you to lose sight 
of the fact that God is by nature, as the book of Nahum and any number of other books in the Old Testament make clear, God is by nature slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, full of compassion and mercy. And Nineveh has experienced that. Seventy to eighty years before Nahum preached his sermon, offered his prophecy concerning Nineveh, Jonah went to Nineveh. And Jonah preached the gospel in Nineveh. Jonah preached repentance. That's what the gospel is. What is the gospel? The gospel is repentance. It is to turn away from unrighteousness. And it is to seek by some means to be restored to relationship with a God of righteousness. And God commissioned Jonah and sent Jonah to Nineveh. This horrific, militaristic city. And Jonah preached the gospel there. And the people repented, and the day of destruction was averted. God withdrew his destroying hand, and he acted in mercy and compassion. He treated them with loving kindness. Something has clearly happened in the intervening 60, 70, or 80 years. We're now in the latter half of the 7th century B.C. It's the 650s or the 640s or the 630s. And clearly the people of Nineveh have lost their way. That repentance is a distant memory. That experience of the grace and the mercy and the kindness of God is a distant memory. And now Nahum, speaking to the same city, is threatening, God is threatening through him that he will bring his judgment. And there are reasons for it. Chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to the bloody city full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. The crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, the galloping of the horse, the bounding of the chariot, horsemen charging, flashing swords, glittering spears, and the result is hosts of slain. Heaps of corpses, dead bodies, without end. What are the reasons for this judgment? There are essentially four. Violence, plunder, which is the relentless exploitation of others to satisfy an insatiable greed. That's one definition of it. Enslaving people and enslaving people through charms or superstition or the occult or deceit or deception or untruths. Those are the things that characterized Nineveh. But of the four, as we've seen before, it is violence, it is bloodshed that receives the most attention. Woe to the city of blood, never without victims. Charging cavalry, flashing swords, glittering spears. Pictures one of excessive and extreme brutality, the kind of thing that we've alluded to in the last week or so. The kings of Assyria wrote about it. They wrote about it. They wrote about their brutality. They erected monuments with texts on those stone monuments describing the kinds of things that they did to their conquered people. 
So brutal was this stuff. Honestly, I mean, I can give you some references. I can tell you where to go to read these texts that are found on these monuments. But I don't feel comfortable reading them in public. So excessive was the brutality. Using words like decapitate and flay and impale and burn and maim and skin alive. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Everything's supposed to be different from what it is here. And folks, God does not remain silent in the face of this. The God of heaven and earth, the God of the Bible, is not a God who is removed from the real injustices and the real sufferings that people encounter in this world. He's not some paternalistic figure who winks and who blinks and simply says, boys will be boys and and sort of sweeps stuff under the rug. There's a verse in Psalm 11. I'd like to have you look at it with me if you'd turn to Psalm 11. I think it focuses the seriousness of the things that we're talking about. And, and you know, you hear a lot of people in these days, a lot of folks will make comments about the fact that, that we've lost our sense of who God is. We, we've lost a sense of what God is like. God has become light. God has become ephemeral. God has become distant and and impassioned, dispassionate. But I want you to look at Psalm 11, verses 4 and 5. And folks... These are verses in the Word of God. These are things inspired by God the Holy Spirit. And they are arresting. And David, who penned this psalm, takes very seriously the things that we're trying to take seriously from the prophet Nahum. Verse 4, the Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. Now there's an interesting figure of speech. Maybe I've referred to this before. I don't remember. I'm like lots of you. I'm forgetting things these days. But there's an interesting phrase, an interesting Hebraism in Psalm 11. His eyes see, his, his eyelids test the, the Hebraism is, is simply this. The language is suggesting, suggesting that as God looks, he is squinting. And you know how when you want to see something more clearly and you don't really have it in focus, you squint? It's anthropomorphic language. God doesn't need to squint. I hope we understand that. The God who is infinite and eternal and unchanging, all of these things that we refer to all the time, this God who is omniscient, who knows all things, doesn't have to squint to see things. But you see, it's a figure of speech seeking to intensify for our benefit the fact that God's gaze is focused. 
And when the kings of Assyria wreak havoc on subject peoples, their brutality does not escape the notice of Almighty God. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, which is to say, he examines. He looks closely at, but look at what is next in verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. His soul. The righteous soul of a righteous God hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. I got myself in trouble in the first church, the first year of the church where we were in Orlando. I know we have, I mean, I get myself in trouble all the time, so that shouldn't be any surprise. I know, you know, I know when we think of sin and the sinner, we have this tendency to say, well, God, God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. As though there's a distinction or a separation that can be made between the sinner and his sin. You don't see that in Psalm 11. Now, I understand what we're saying, what we're marveling at when we say God hates the sin but loves the sinner, what we're marveling at is the simply remarkable thing that a God of limitless righteousness should love people who are unrighteous. And that somehow, by the mystery of His grace, His love should be person-specific in overcoming and overruling the guilt, the unrighteousness, the corruption of sinners. So we understand what is being said there. But I want to have us focus on Psalm 11. And I, I got in trouble, as I said, the first year that we were in Orlando and actually had a family leave the church because I made reference. This is in the fall of 1991. I made reference to a very famous athlete who had contracted the HIV virus that leads to AIDS. And I asked my congregation to think, how does God view this? How does God think about this? How does God think about unrighteousness? And I asked I ask the people just to think with me. How many sexual liaisons were there? How many violations of the dignity of other human beings? How many women were exposed to the ravaging effects of AIDS because of the fame and the power and the seduction that he employed to satisfy his personal lusts? How many people were exposed because of his unrighteousness. Do we have the courage to say, 
as David said, do we have the courage to to say, understanding that the grace of God reaches out and lays hold of people who are unrighteousness and overcomes that unrighteousness and forgives that righteousness, unrighteousness. Nevertheless, are we bold enough to say that God, who is holy and who is righteous and who is at home in the universe he has made, who cares about what is right, and who has power to do something about what is wrong, are we courageous enough to say that with a pure and perfect and undefiled and righteous anger, he hates sin and he hates the perpetrators of sin. Do we have the courage to say these things? To say that when there is no repentance, when the kindness of God is repudiated, when the kindness of God is rejected, that God will, with the same righteous and just anger, visit his just and righteous judgment on those who perpetrate acts of violence, which dishonor God and dehumanize his image bearers. That is what the scriptures teach. It's hard. But God hates the wanton, brutal exploitation of the kings of Nineveh. And after sending one prophet to preach to them grace and forgiveness and mercy and compassion, after which preaching he relents, sends another prophet and warns them of the reasonableness of the judgment that is to come. And that judgment came, and it came swiftly. It came in 612 B.C. The city of Nineveh was destroyed, devastated by the Babylonians, never, ever to be dwelled in or rebuilt again. That's how serious God is about unrighteousness. And he is that serious about it because he is a righteous and just God. And so his judgment is reasonable. There's somebody at home in the universe. And he cares about what is right and he cares about what is wrong. And he has power to do something about it. And when he acts in this way, he is giving us a glimpse of what it will look like when he makes everything right. And righteous. And so there is a reasonableness to this judgment. And when this judgment comes, nothing, nothing can stand in its path. Look at verse 8 of chapter 3. Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart a sea, and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers. It doesn't mean much to us, but to the Assyrians, it meant a lot. Thebes was a city that was built in the Nile Delta. And the reference here is to this glorious cosmopolitan city. There are ruins that can still be visited the extent of it, the wealth of it, the opulence of it, the beauty of it. 
was a wonder of the world. It was surrounded by water. You know why Venice was built? You know where Venice is, right? It's a city in the middle of a lagoon. Who builds cities in the middle of lagoons? People who are threatened on land build cities in the middle of lagoons. And that's why Venice was built. They started driving these pilings down into this lagoon and driving these pilings in. They then laid platforms and they put buildings on top of these pilings and that's what Venice is. And the whole reason it exists is because in the 13th and 14th centuries, the people on land needed a place of safety, so they surrounded themselves with water because they could see in every direction and they could see when the enemies were coming and they had the advantage if anybody tried to conquer them. It was a place of refuge. And that's what Thebes was. It was surrounded by water, built in the delta, with all of these rivulets running through the delta and being a protection around this glorious city. And not only was the water a protection, but they had all of these allies, Cush and Egypt and Put and the Libyans. And what those four countries or people groups represent are the four points of the compass. And basically what is being said here is not only did they have the waters protecting them, but they had these subjected people who had become allies that were a buffer between them and anyone who would attack them. Feels pretty secure, doesn't it? Feels pretty safe. Just like us here. What makes us safe? What kept us safe for a long, long time? An ocean to the east and an ocean to the west and fortunately fairly friendly neighbors to the north and south. You begin to think you're secure, don't you? Well, those living in Thebes certainly did feel secure. But then armies in 663 B.C., armies marched across that delta, crossed those rivulets, made their way to Thebes, and because the capital city of those armies was so far removed from Thebes, and the king of that country didn't feel that he could really watch over Thebes from that distance, that great distance, he decimated and destroyed the city, and he killed every inhabitant of the city. Put them all to the sword. And whose armies were they who marched against Thebes and destroyed the city? They were the armies of the Assyrians. Thebes meant something to the people who were receiving this prophecy. And basically what God is saying to the Ninevites and to their kings, the Assyrians and their kings, is this. There is a greater, more powerful hand behind the hands of generals. And that is my hand. And I move generals. I move armies. And I overcome wicked cities. And I destroy what is unrighteous because I am committed to putting things right in the universe that I've made. And so within a generation of this prophecy, Babylonian armies rose up and marched against the Assyrians and did to Nineveh 
what the Assyrians had done to Thebes. And the city was never built ever again. When judgment comes, it is irresistible. It cannot be stopped. And as I said to you last week, judgment when it comes, being irresistible, unrelenting, and complete, the hurricane force of the judgment of God will make Galveston look like a safe place. It is unrelenting and irresistible. So what's the third thing? Well, here's perhaps the rather bizarre and surprising thing. Judgment is reasonable because God is righteous and just and good and he is committed to putting things right. When it comes, it comes with hurricane force and it doesn't leave anything standing. What's the third thing? Well, strangely, judgment brings rejoicing. Look at verse 19. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. And all who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. All who hear the news about Nineveh rejoice. They clap their hands. They applaud. How do you think the folks of Uganda felt when Idi Amin was finally brought down? Do you suppose there would have been rejoicing when a brutal, unjust, bloody tyrant was finally brought down? How did all of Western Europe feel when Adolf Hitler was finally brought down? Don't you suppose there was rejoicing? Some of you remember. That's all that Nahum is saying here. That's all that God is saying through Nahum. All those who hear the news about you will clap their hands over you. For who has not come under your unceasing evil? There is celebration at the fall of evil empires. There is a release of joy when those who have been the perpetrators of horrific evil are finally brought to justice. Folks, the applications of this are across the waterfront of human life. Racial injustice. Injustice against the unborn. Injustice against children who are violated by those who are supposed to be their protectors. Injustice perpetrated against women by a gender stronger than they are. Against whom they cannot defend themselves. Use your, I trust, sanctified imaginations and understand that wherever unrighteousness is found, a righteous God will ferret it out and he will deal with it. There are folks in this room who have suffered some serious injustice. And there is a release of joy to know that there is a God in the heavens, there is someone at home in the universe who cares about it 
and who deals with it. Now, while the fall of Nineveh brought clapping hands and brought rejoicing, the fall of Nineveh only resulted in the rise of Babylon. And the fall of Babylon only resulted in the rise of the Medo-Persian Empire. And the fall of the Medo-Persian Empire only resulted in the rise of the Greeks. And the fall of the Greek dynasties and the Greek Empire only resulted in the rise of the Romans, who put in power brutal tyrants like Herod, who murdered all of the children in Bethlehem under the age of two because of his paranoia at the prospect that another king had appeared on the scene who threatened his kingdom. So the fall of Nineveh and the fall of Babylon and the fall of Greece and the fall of Rome, all of these are only snapshots of the final judgment which God will bring at the end of history. Flip ahead to Revelation 18 and 19, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. But I am going to read a few verses from chapter 18, and then I want you to hear verse 19. Fallen, verse 2 of chapter 18. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. Verse 10, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, in a single hour your judgment has come. Verse 8, 16, alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with purple, at other people's expense, the result of her exploitation. In a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. Verse 19, alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. In a single hour, she has been laid waste. Verse 21, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and be found no more. The sound of harpists, musicians, of flute players, and of trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And then verse 1 of chapter 19. After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for His judgments are true and just and He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And verse 5, Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, small and great. The desolation of Nineveh, the desolation of Babylon, the desolation of Greece and Rome and all of the kingdoms corrupted, throughout the history of mankind are little snapshots of what God will do at the end of history when Jesus the King comes back and enters into judgment 
with the nations. And when he enters into the judge, into judgment with the nations, you, his people, will rejoice because unrighteousness will be overcome and righteousness, righteousness will be exalted in the land. And your rejoicing, your rejoicing, to be sure, will be a sober rejoicing. It will be an amazing rejoicing because every true believer will witness the vindication of righteousness and the visitation of judgment upon unrighteousness. Every true believer will look at that visitation of judgment upon unrighteousness and will clearly and gladly say, there but for the grace of God go I. There but for the grace of God go I. This is not a note that is sounded very often, but historically it has been a piece of the gospel that the church has heralded in the midst of the nations. Judgment is coming, and it will be a day of unspeakable terror and dread. But there is a place of calm in the eye of the storm. And wherever the church has heralded this announcement of a coming judgment, the church has been quick to plead with people that Jesus Christ is the place of calm in the eye of the storm. And so the question always is and always has to be, in the face of this coming judgment, where a righteous God will visit righteous judgment upon unrighteousness, do you know that you are safe in the eye of the storm? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, you know the heart of each person in this room. You know, you know where we are. You know what we're thinking. And you know what we need. Lord, for some of us, our first response is to say again, what an amazing and incredible thing it is that you have rescued me. Lord Jesus, I, I pray for any in this room, any in this place, who do not know for certain that they are safe in the eye of that storm. I plead with you that by your spirit you would trouble them and trouble them deeply. That you would so arrest them. That you would be so relentless with them that they would not rest until they find that place of safety in Jesus Christ. Father, this is a work that you alone can do. Would you do it to the praise of your glorious grace? And be with us, we pray, as we head into this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me encourage you to turn to number 16 in your hymnal.